Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome history, friends, patrons, all to something a little bit different and a little bit special. You see, When Diplomacy Fails is 10 years old now. Well, it's technically 10 years old from May, but things were happening in Zach's life. Moving house is a complete pain and then I got COVID, so there wasn't really time to do any ridiculous celebrations that I normally do. Don't worry, there's no 10 weeks to run wild coming your way. But there is a few episodes in the next few weeks or so, basically kind of summarizing the last decade of history podcasting, the last third of my life, believe it or not. So here's how it's going to work. This episode here is going to be a kind of retrospective, basically putting into context, because we love context, the role this podcast has had in my life, the role that all these different opportunities to explore history has had and how When Diplomacy Fails has really made such a positive difference to me, how it's made me a better historian and really a better person and a better professional too. So yeah, if you like these kinds of explorations, I know if I was listening to a history podcast and a history podcaster was like, this is basically my life of the last 10 years, I'd be like, oh cool. But I understand this is not for everyone, so it may even come across as a little bit self-indulgent because by nature of these things, I'm talking about myself for essentially an hour. So if that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, then feel free to go and get coffee somewhere else. But if you are interested, then great. Still to come in these celebrations is an episode looking at my 10 favorite series, an episode looking at my 10 favorite historical figures, an episode looking at my 10 favourite guests, and an episode explaining what I think will be the future of this podcast, where I see my plans going for post-PhD, WDF, etc, etc. So if you like all this chunky information and you like me talking about myself and this podcast a lot, and if you do get the nostalgic feels from time to time and like to think what things were like in 2012, then welcome to the podcast. Again, maybe it's a bit self-indulgent, maybe I'm talking about myself too much, but you know what? There's not a lot of 10-year-old podcasts out there, and every now and then I kind of just decide, well, it's my podcast feed, and I do what I want, because I pretty much don't get to do what I want in any other sphere of my life. 
So sorry about this in advance. If you want to connect with me or talk about this episode or reminisce with me together, then connect with me. The When Diplomacy Fails podcast group is alive and well. I just posted a nice little meme in there the other day. And you can also talk with me in 280 characters or less on Twitter at the WDF Podcast. So yeah, let's make July 2022 the birthday month of When Diplomacy Fails. Let's just hijack it. Sure, why not? What else would we be doing? So, buckle up, sit down comfortably, or keep that good running pace if you're running, or iron those clothes really well, you missed that crease actually. Let that dog sniff. Anyway, let's just get this, let's just get this done, alright? Thanks so much for 10 years now, hold on. Thanks so much for 10 years, and thank you for being a wonderful history friend. An awful lot can happen in 10 years. 10 years ago, I, Zach Twomley, had just finished the first year of my Bachelor of Arts in University College Dublin. And Zach Twomley in 2012 was feeling pretty good about himself. You see, I'd have to work harder than most to get into university. My leaving cert, the exams you do at the end of secondary school or high school when you're like 17 or 18... Well, those results were not good enough to get me into university originally. I missed out on the points, basically, for the course that I wanted, English and History, which to me, I'd always imagined doing and having no problems doing, because that was the plan and that was what I was always going to do. Rather than attend university like my peers did from 2010 to 2011, I attended Rathmines College of Further Education a fantastic little college in South Dublin, and it granted me a second chance, as long as I did well enough in those examinations. Well, I did. I managed to get nine out of nine distinctions in the subjects I had, and in summer 2011, I knew I'd be attending my dream degree. Rathmines had been a fantastic learning experience for me, though. It wasn't an inconvenient detour, but a blessing. I learned how to reference, how important it is not to plagiarise, how to actually research and what sources to use, but perhaps most importantly for me and for the future of this podcast, I changed my subject selection. Rather than study history and English at UCD, I pivoted towards a more natural combination of history and politics with international relations. I also consumed a lot of history podcasts while I read deeply and widely. Even at that early stage at 20 years old, starting my first year of university in September 2011, I had a passion for learning and exploring history. As I took the photo from my new student card, with my laptop's webcam of course, since I didn't have a camera phone at that stage, I knew I was embarking on an exciting journey of learning. I'll never forget my first ever lecture in UCD either. It was Monday at noon in September 2011, and the subject was Celtic Civilization and oh boy... Did it absolutely suck. See, here's the thing about University College Dublin. I quickly discovered that while it could be great, it was also not designed to give the specific attention to detail in history that I craved, and especially not in first year as well. Left with no other choice, I delved even deeper into history podcasts, and in the spring of 2012, I came across a particular episode of the History of England, wherein David Crowther, the host of that podcast if you're not aware, with remarkable bravery, it has to be said, essentially encouraged anyone who wanted to make a history podcast to contact him. Fearing absolutely nothing, 
I bit the bullet and used his reputable podcast feed to promote my newly launched show. Before I did all that, though, I had to actually plan my show. I had to decide what it would be about, and of course, I had to give this podcast a name. In the months before May 2012, I did just that. I don't remember taking very long to decide. I knew what interested me most about history, because every time we talked about it in history class, I just couldn't get enough of it. And I got that feeling in the pit of my stomach where I felt compelled to learn more. The subject in question was the prelude to the First World War. And that process of learning about how interconnected Europe was, learning about the diplomacy of that era, and learning what made people tick and who they ticked off, it lit something of a fire under me. And this wasn't exactly a new experience. I remember being 16 and my proposed project for my history class was literally titled Why World War I Happened. My teacher soon tempered my enthusiasm, but she couldn't rid me of that thirst for knowledge. I was like science boy, but in a history sphere, and once the shackles of high school were broken, there was very little to stop me. As I said, with this memory burned into my mind, I knew that what I cared about most of all when it came to history was that question of why war happened. Yes, I was focused on World War I, but that was only because of my lack of knowledge of other periods. Hard as it is to imagine, at this point in 2012, I knew very little to nothing of the 18th century or the Thirty Years' War or even really Bismarck. I was like a blank canvas, but I hung to that question of why, and I knew that those processes which preceded the First World War would be of most interest to me. Fortunately, even though I knew little of other wars or eras, I had the wisdom to somehow know that other eras presented similar questions and quandaries, since other periods had loads of conflicts to examine and wrap my head around. The formula was thus simple. In this podcast of mine, I would examine why wars happened, and as a 20-year-old newbie, that didn't seem too vague or challenging at all. Ah, the sweet naivety. Then it was time to decide a name, and while I'd love to say that I was struck by a vision of what to call my show as what sort of happened with the Matchlock historical fiction series I'm doing, really it was quite simple. What I wanted to find out was what happened when diplomacy fails. Of course, the show could just as easily have been called Why Diplomacy Fails, and actually, come to think of it, maybe that would have been a better name, but here we are. Armed with my new name and formula, I went about creating my first ever episode, And of course, I landed on a period that utterly fascinated me, but which nobody seemed to be talking about. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. I quickly discovered that being a history student was an ideal time to begin a history podcast because I had access to the largest library in Ireland, in UCD. Although I lacked the finesse to know what sources I needed, I still managed to fill my arms with all sorts of thick and dusty books that hadn't been opened in quite a while. I distinctly remember being able to renew those library books on the Franco-Prussian War and on Bismarck several times because nobody seemed to care about that era or that conflict. But I did. Writing my first episode script was actually the easy part of this process. I followed the formula which has served me well to this day. First, I find out what is reported to be the best book on the subject. In this case, people said it was Geoffrey Warrow's eponymous book on the Franco-Prussian War. Then, using that as my foundations, I return to various points in the script using other tidbits I'd learned from other sources. This strategy has always worked well for me, and while some might think of it as simplistic, I'd recommend it to anyone looking to write scripts for their own history podcasts. 
Essentially, you use one source to form your main narrative, and then you go through loads of other different sources. And now that you're confident that you kind of know what happens, you'll be able to really decide what sounds right and what sounds kind of out there, and through a process of elimination, make beautiful history. At the end of the day, anything is better than staring at a white blank page and having that cursor blink demandingly at you. But with the script written and filled with humour and information and just the right amount of sarcasm, it was time to record. And here I thought I was on to a winner. I don't really remember being unhappy with my voice, even though I was known for sounding really, really posh and not exactly Irish. Anyone who's heard a Wicklow or Dublin accent can testify. I don't really sound like I'm from here. Combine that with the fact that I'm not Catholic and I've never played any Irish music or even picked up a hurley in my life. And you could say that drinking Guinness is the only Irish thing I really do, but damn it, I love this country, in case it wasn't obvious. I also remember being aware of the fact that I was a novelty, because in 2012, the only other Irish person I was aware of that had a podcast was Finn and his Irish History podcast. This was an era before Blind Boy and before any old Irish randomer could start any rambly podcast they liked. Finn and I were the OGs. Yet, of course, I needed more than just my vague Irishness to get me through. I had to actually sit down and record this thing, and that's where I ran into problems. To begin with, I printed out the 19-page script, which I soon realised was completely unnecessary and also caused a lot of noise. I also had my speaking style completely wrong. Whenever I messed up, which was often, As I balanced the microphone on my knee and sat on the chair under my bed, I would repeat the messed up word rather than the whole sentence. This meant that when it came time to edit, I had to find the words that were said correctly and stick them all together. I also had no concept of how to breathe, when to breathe, and why you shouldn't exhale in relief every time you successfully recorded a particularly tricky sentence. Ah, thank God. Eventually, though, these teething problems would be worked out, and even at this early stage, the editing was made a bit more exciting by the fact that I fancied myself something of a genius sound mixer who could effortlessly grab sounds and soundtracks from the greatest PC game of all time, Civilization IV. Only the most fortunate listeners will remember that I used to mark each phase of the episode with the bell background sound. It's the one I still use. This one... I would announce the declaration of war with this sound. And finally, I would denote the arrival of peace with this sound. I soon tidied things up and only kept that background sound, which apart from a brief period when it was replaced with a different guitar tune, has remained unchanged for the last decade. With this episode done, now it was time to contact David Crowther and tell him the good news. Not only did I want to launch a podcast, I was already miles ahead of other amateurs out there. I had a name, a formula, a first episode, and even fancy background music. David was generous and polite, but surprisingly he was not starstruck. He asked that instead of some random period of history 700 years into the future of his narrative, I actually help him out by having an episode on Bannockburn, that battle in 1314, which he had yet to cover, and couldn't bring himself to cover either because he was a special snowflake. I'm joking, of course, David knows how much I love him for this favour, and what a favour it was. 
If you look at the first few reviews of this podcast especially, and even some since, you'll see how many listeners I gained from David's show here. Another memory I have is going on a walk organised by my church and telling all who would listen that my podcast, which then boasted a grand total of four episodes, had just reached 100 downloads. Wow. Again, I should reiterate the point that in 2012, I had to preface anything by explaining what a podcast actually was. Pretty much nobody understood or wanted to know, but as you guys are surely aware by now, that didn't stop me talking about it. What followed was a pretty magical summer. Outrageously, considering the fees, University College Dublin takes what amounts to four and a half months off during the summer, and the result was that by July 2012, barely three months after beginning this thing, I'd reached episode 10 and thought it was time to tackle my first special which could be on nothing other than Napoleon Bonaparte. Having listened to all the episodes of the Napoleon 101 show with J. David Markham and Cameron Riley, I was something of an expert, don't you know? What followed was a crammed, sweaty mess of a Napoleon special, but I still persevered. Since I was on the way by this stage, it surely only made sense to make episodes 11 to 19 prepare my listeners for the big one, the First World War. And so I did and continued to enjoy the most glorious, carefree period of my life. It was all filled with podcasting, running, and coffee, and I'm sure my friends thought I was weird, as they went on the piss and hung around outside Tesco while I hunkered down and voluntarily did work. But I was also starting to realise, even then, that this nerd was who Zach Twomley actually is. Researching, writing, recording, editing, publishing, publicising, and talking with you guys afterwards after you gave me such great feedback, this process during all of this was when I was most happy, and that was when everything seemed to make sense and when I was in the zone. Even then, at the age of 20, I'd found what I really loved to do, and my love of this medium and these processes hasn't diminished since. In fact, it's only grown. But this dream world couldn't last forever. In January 2013, I began my First World War series as intended, and for the next three months, it all went swimmingly. Yet I was haunted by a central truth, which has been true ever since. Podcasting might be wonderful fun, but it cannot support me financially, and if I wanted to keep podcasting, I would need a job. I should qualify that by saying that you guys support me really well on Patreon, and I've been able to use this income to pay for the PhD and live my life, but it's not enough to live on in this increasingly expensive world. Of course, when doing a PhD and forced to push podcasting to the side for a while, a decline in income is only to be expected, especially when you poor patrons haven't gotten a special series in quite a while. Sorry about that. We don't have to get into this now, and I don't want you to think I don't appreciate you guys. And yes, I know these mid-roll ads are really annoying, so sorry about that. Anyway, Operation Get Zack a Job was in full swing, and I'd applied to a foolproof place, Extravision. In case you somehow weren't aware, Extravision was in the same category of store as Blockbusters or GameStop, where video games and films could be bought and rented. As an expert in being unimpressive at Call of Duty... I was uniquely qualified for the job of retail assistant in a place like this. But despite the manager being impressed with the success of my blog, which at this point recorded 100,000 downloads, they hired some other person with a way better kill-death ratio on COD than me, and my dreams, I thought, had gone up in smoke. 
I returned rather depressed to the job I'd had for a long time as a kitchen porter, which was only seasonal and really infrequent, and I moped for another month or so before finishing the First World War and looking forward to my next podcasting project. Even now, when diplomacy fails, served as my consolation, because even if things were going bad in real-life Zack land, I could take solace for the fact that there was a world of history out there to explore, and you guys would come along with me as we geeked out on it together. By now, I was also speaking loudly enough about when diplomacy fails that I'd gotten attention from some surprising quarters. First, listener Seamus asked me to give a talk at the Wicklow Rotary Club, which I did on the 14th of January 2013, whereafter I told Facebook about it, and I actually just searched Facebook there to make sure I got the right date, just in case you think I am a freak who can remember dates on cue. Shortly afterwards, I was invited to speak on Dublin City FM about podcasting and about the First World War on a show that hosted people and their interesting hobbies. I remember ducking out of a lecture to hear myself on this radio show and using my phone to get the right frequency at the primetime slot of 3pm in the afternoon on a random Tuesday. So yeah, When Diplomacy Fails was hardly becoming a household name. But these experiences were all valuable and they showed clearly enough that what I had was special and worth talking about. But still, I needed a job. From February to April 2013, I got another little job. I worked a few Sundays in this new coffee shop in my village in Kilcool. Interestingly, it was run by the guy who had invited me onto his radio show. And it wasn't much, but it was an education in how to make coffee, a drink you probably haven't heard of because it soon went out of fashion. Fortunately, a better opportunity presented itself in May 2013, when When Diplomacy Fails was barely a year old. Costa Coffee was hiring, and thanks to my experience burning milk, I was perfect for the job. One shaky interview later, I was hired. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I am by nature a somewhat clumsy person, especially when it comes to doing things I've never done before. I'm really bad at making things with my hands, so the summer of 2013 became consumed with me getting to grips with how to be an actual barista and not burn the house down. It would honestly take the guts of a year for me to be completely comfortable with everything, so if you're ever thinking when you're listening to this, this guy knows everything about history and he's even doing a PhD, he must have everything together, he must be great at everything. No, actually not. I spend all my points on history and, like one of those RPGs when you spend all your points on something and have nothing else to spare, yeah, that's me. But this irritating lack of free time since I was getting to grips with Costa Coffee Well, it meant I wasn't able to podcast nearly as much as I'd like. Not even the fact that I'd finished second year of my Bachelor of Arts could cheer me up from the fact that this summer would be very unlike the previous one, which was sad because I had, of course, assumed and actually promised you guys that no matter how busy university made me, at least I had the summer to podcast like it was 2012 again. And I had so many plans. I was into the early 17th century in a complete tonal shift from the First World War, and planned to begin a new season of When Diplomacy Fails, in eras and conflicts I'd never encountered before. But of course, and not for the last time, life got in the way. By the end of the summer, I had only five episodes finished, but I'd started a new special series which was to fundamentally shape When Diplomacy Fails and me going forward. You may have heard of this series. It was on a lesser-known conflict called The Thirty Years' War. 
In late August 2013, I began the first steps of this journey into the most destructive conflict in history, before the Second World War utterly overshadowed it, that is. As I say in those early episodes, oh I should probably clarify here, the current 30 Years War series is not this one that I started here in August 2013. It hasn't been going on for that long. Well, nearly that long, but not quite that long. Basically, this current 30 Years War series is my second go of it in more detail, and I'll talk about that more later, but just so you're aware. In the first run of these episodes on the 30 Years War, I had no real idea of how the war would end, but I was at least somewhat aware of the war itself, thanks to my dad, who had found a very old and wrinkled copy of Geoffrey Parker's Europe in Crisis, which I still maintain as the best account of this war. Until I came along, of course. <laughs> I was aided in my quest to learn more about the conflict by UCD's library, which once again armed me with an armful of books. Even as I began my third and final year of my Bachelor of Arts, I knew I was onto something special. Nobody had ever tackled this conflict in audio format before, and I knew for a fact that I had never been taught about it. This reinforced an important point. I had the opportunity to do a real service to people, to teach and enlighten them about a period of history or other periods of history in a level of detail that they couldn't access anywhere else, at least not in audio form. Since people tend not to have time to access a load of books, podcasting distinguished itself here as the busy or active person's way of consuming history. This was what I'd use podcasting for, after all, and I was so privileged to be able to serve in the same way. It was also a lot of fun, obviously, and I received some valuable feedback from you guys as I found out firsthand just how shocking and inspiring the Thirty Years' War was. Why, I wondered several times, had more films or TV shows or historical fiction series not been made of such a jam-packed and fascinating era? I just couldn't wrap my head around how all of this epic drama and struggle had been lost, as they say, to history. Now this idea would continue and has continued to grow in my head until, with my Matchlock series, I finally decided to do something about it. But among those pieces of feedback came a surprising one from a guy called Dr. John Hogan in the Dublin Institute of Technology. You see, John was a professor in politics and business, and he wanted me to do a guest lecture to his students about the First World War, which would fill in some gaps in their curriculum. So, on the morning of the 13th of December 2013, a very nervous Zach, armed with a ridiculously long PowerPoint and probably heart palpitations, made his way to the Dublin Institute of Technology, and for about an hour and a half, 20 unfortunate students who really just wanted to be finished for the Christmas break, were forced to listen to me explain why World War I happened. Present in the lecture were several important members of faculty, including a visiting professor from Bonn University. Fortunately, though I was really nervous, there was something relaxing and really enjoyable about talking about stuff that I was really interested in, to put it in a simpler way. And the 90 minutes went by in a breeze, to the point that I was joking and answering their questions on the fly. And I should add, this was only all possible, not just in terms of the connection my podcast made, as John Hogan had listened to the show and contacted me because of it, but I was also able for all this in the first place, because When Diplomacy Fails had forced me to put my head down and learn, something which I'd always have trouble with, as my experience with those Leaving Cert exams demonstrates. That experience of failing to get the results I wanted, then having to attend my Debs, which is the Irish version of prom, by the way, 
on the very day when everyone received their offers from college and their chosen universities, and I just had to tell everyone that I got nothing at all, well, it still upsets me to this day. Of course, a few weeks later, I'd find out I got into Rath Mines and I'd be all right, but I think that whole experience did real damage to my confidence. I'd never really considered myself particularly bright in school, and I was an average pupil at best. Now, granted, since finishing school, I was able to focus on the only thing I really loved in school, history, writing really long essays and then getting feedback on them, which is basically what history podcasting is. But still, standing there before those students in DIT who had actually gotten the points in their leaving cert to be there and were now being taught by me, well, it really made me reflect on who I was as a person and how I saw myself. And I'd love to say that on that day I conquered my imposter syndrome and went on to never doubt myself again, but instead it was a more modest flutter which suggested I could do this. I could teach others and I could ignite enthusiasm in others. Although they were probably just in a good mood because they were about to be off college for a month, that receptive audience of students stuck with me and I skipped my way to Burger King thereafter where I had a celebratory XL meal along with the most ludicrous of other extras I could fit into myself. The combination of relief and self-belief was incredible. And it was Christmas as well, on top of everything else. It was something of a turning point in my life, no word of a lie, and it's all thanks to Dr. John Hogan. Little did I know he wasn't finished with me yet, but I looked forward to 2014 with a new positivity, and I knew that I was going to give the remainder of the 30 Years War story my all. On the 23rd of June 2014, I finally finished the 30 Years War series. After 18 episodes, I told you guys, thank God I'm finally finished this war and will never have to return to it again. Now it was surely a time to celebrate. I had just finished my third year of my Bachelor of Arts on top of everything else and was en route to getting my BA. Me, the guy who couldn't scrape enough points together to attend in the first place. Not only that, but hold on to your rented graduation caps, because I intended to return to UCD in the autumn of 2014 and begin my master's in history. All of this fantastic news meant that I was due a break, so for a few hours on the 24th of June 2014, I did have a break. But then I opened my laptop again and began my researching and writing processes once more. It wasn't hard to justify such frenetic activity. After all, the centenary of Franz Ferdinand's assassination was only days away, and I had something pretty darn special planned for when diplomacy fails. What followed was probably the most important series I ever made, the July Crisis Anniversary Project. This project would trace the diplomatic machinations of the European powers, from the moment of Franz Ferdinand's assassination to the point when declarations of war started flying around the continent. Because it was a hundred years since these events had happened, I tried to capture that by stating that X or Y occurred on this particular day 100 years ago. It was a simple touch, but one which many of you seem to appreciate. This whole period of history was complex and fascinating, and it was a lot of hard work to get through, but what I made in this series served as effectively my blueprint for podcasting. After this podcast project, I would never again return to those chunky one-hour episodes with a beginning, middle, and end. Instead, my new thirst for depth of knowledge compelled me to switch up the podcast's formula and spend several episodes exploring history in the detail I wanted without fear of you guys checking out or of getting overwhelmed myself. The podcast changed, in short, from a surface-level examination of various wars in history 
to an analytical deep dive that took as long as necessary to tell the story that was there. In short, When Diplomacy Fails became more academic, and as a result, I became a better historian. The shift in tone and approach was well-timed, as I finished the July Crisis just as I began the Masters. The series didn't just mark a watershed moment in the podcast's productivity and formula, it also marked a new era in its popularity and credibility. Having travelled with me through the murky mists of summer 1914, you all saw how serious and passionate I was, on a scale rarely seen or heard in this medium. In my head, this is the moment when When Diplomacy Fails truly began. My podcasting tutorial was over, and I was ready to continue with this momentum to make something really special. And sure, I was just starting a master's, and yes, I was also working at Costa Coffee whenever I was off, but confound it, When Diplomacy Fails was going to absolutely explode now, and... Oh, well, it says here that I released no episodes at all from August 2014 to March 2015... Do you know what? I think that's the longest break from this show I ever actually had. I wonder what that feels like. This free time, it enabled me to step outside my comfort zone. First, I went to London and stayed in my uncle's house and met executives from the BBC to talk about my podcast and pick their brains on how to make it better and bring it to more people. I still remember their faces when I told them I'd been doing it for three years and had one million downloads. We're past eight million downloads now, just so you know. That experience was stressful and I was ridiculously nervous to meet these people, but I'm so glad I did. The whole thing made me more confident and willing to talk up my achievements. It's an important skill to drill into yourself when you're Irish and are so used to being self-deprecating. The next trip in early May 2015 was less nerve-wracking, but it was incredibly fun and educational, as my master's class went to Gallipoli to mark the centenary of that battle. See, I'm not the only one who likes to mark these centenaries. It's done in the wider world too. Well, it was a lot of battlefield tours and beer and great times, and to this day I have a lot of time for my master's class. I just wish we could see each other more often. But they did come to my wedding, which was really special. Of course, I gave them all When Diplomacy Fails bottle openers as a thank you. Seriously though, in the aftermath of the July crisis, I knew I needed some time off. And with so much change on the horizon... I thought a break to focus on my studies couldn't have been a bad idea. I also discovered something which was to become a common theme for this show and my education. As I suspected, these things, the podcasting and the education, they don't exist in a vacuum. In other words, things I learn in podcasting bleed over into university and bolster my background knowledge, as well as my writing and researching skills, making my degree, I won't say easier, but certainly less full of friction. And that was before the July Crisis Anniversary Project. See, now that that was done and I had all that knowledge fresh in my mind, I found I understood and wanted to know more about topics and debates that most history students barely scratched the surface of. This was particularly handy, a good place to be in mentally, because as any master's student knows, selecting a topic for your dissertation is the mission from the beginning. Armed with my heaps of July Crisis knowledge, I knew this era was the one for me, and with some prodding from William Mulligan, my supervisor, I landed on the Code of Honour, or National Honour, as it was also known. I was familiar with National Honour, mostly because it was referenced constantly by the European governments during the July Crisis, and my awareness of this fact made me more excited than Professor Mulligan might have expected. National Honour compelled the British to come to Belgium's aid. It moved the French to stand up for their Russian ally, 
and moved the Russians to fight for their Slavic brethren in Belgrade. It motivated the Germans to act in Vienna's interest, and perhaps most notably of all, it forced the Austrians to do something, however messy that something was, once Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated. As I had discovered, national honour was everywhere during the July crisis, but what about the exclusively British case? Could an argument be made for national honour's central role in British policy? Could national honour help explain why the Brits acted as they did? Was national honour favoured by those that wanted war, or was it also favoured by the Peace Party? These were all important questions, but I can't emphasise enough the fact that I would have found them very difficult to answer if the July Crisis Project hadn't given me such a thorough grounding in the era and its actors. It's because of this that I can say the July Crisis made my masters possible. But it did more than that, because after leaving everything to the last minute, of course I tend to do this, and then writing like a madman through the summer of 2015, I learned that my dissertation on British national honour during the July crisis had been given the distinction of best dissertation in the School of History that year. It was something called the Owen McNeill Graduate Publication Award. In the end, it turned out that award didn't really mean all that much and was really just something I could put on my CV. There'd be no financial reward coming my way, in other words. But still, I vividly remember reading that email from William Mulligan, who had actually leaked the news prematurely to me because he was so excited. I whooped and squealed and jumped and laughed in my chair. I just couldn't believe it. To this day, I still can't believe it. Me, I had won an award for something academic. My dissertation wasn't just good, it was the best in the class. And as someone who'd never been picked first for anything, or really won anything in school... I can honestly say I was on cloud nine. In the meantime, of course, the podcast had been ongoing. I had returned to form in March 2015, and if I'm honest, I effectively produced several episodes and had a bit of a podcast holiday before actually knuckling down and taking the masters seriously. As you can see, though, it worked out in the end. In podcast terms, I returned to an era which had fascinated me since the 30 Years War series. I knew what happened in the Thirty Years' War, but what about what happened afterwards? Was 1648 really the end of war in Europe? Well, no. In the wars I covered next, the First Anglo-Dutch War of 1652-54 and the Swedish Deluges of 1655-60, I found myself enthralled by this period of history I'd never, literally never, heard a peep about for my whole life. Yet here was this mine of incredible stories and epic drama and I didn't even really get to look at Cromwell. Then I took the aforementioned hiatus over the summer where I sorted my masters out, and by September 2015, I was able to share my dissertation in five episodes, as I told you excitedly that I'd won the award and was thus technically an award-winning podcaster now. Everything was going swimmingly in my personal life as well. By now I'd been with Anna, my future wife, for nine months, and was blissfully in love. What could possibly go wrong? Well, how about a poorly planned and unwanted effort to once again return to the era of the First World War from Britain's perspective, but this time on a far grander scale? It was something I called Britain Goes to War, and really, it's all John Charmley's fault. Charmley, a historian and professor at the University of East Anglia, wrote a book called Splendid Isolation, which examined British foreign policy from 1874 to 1914, but... Really, the greatest focus was on the Russo-Turkish War period of the 1870s themselves. Charmley's account of Disraeli longing for firm action against Russia, Disraeli's political machinations and his alienation of his friend Lord Derby, 
all contributed to a narrative which I found absolutely captivating. And as is so often the case when I find these incredible stories, my first thought is to share them with you. This impulse has been tempered in the years since, as I consider first whether you guys want it, whether it fits my current schedule, and whether I'll be able to see it through. But I think it's fair to say that you could consider Britain Goes to War as one of those early warning signs that, capable as I was, I didn't always make the most well-thought-out-of plans. Britain Goes to War had been envisioned as this grand effort to trace British foreign policy from 1874 to 1914, in the same vein as Charmley's book, really. Like Charmley, though, my narrative basically got stuck in the Russo-Turkish period of 1877-78, to and while this was all really interesting and really in-depth, it was also not quite what you guys were looking for, I guess, especially since I'd covered the 1650s already and recently, so logic would dictate that the 1660s would be next. Well, logic may have been in short supply in Zack's excited brain in autumn 2015, but one thing I did have a lot of were soundtracks from the period, and I was equally eager to share these because... Do you know what? I don't really know. It was a different time, okay? I have said Britain Goes to War is something I want to return to, and that's true, but since saying that, my plans for this series and the concept itself have changed in line with my PhD research. Would it not be better to structure Britain Goes to War around the various foreign policy crises I examine within my PhD? Since there's so many of them, and since the period goes from 1850 to 85, it seems like there'd be a lot of material. And is there a way to bring in my findings on national honour without, I have to say, without boring you guys with a concept you might not be interested in? Even though, I should add, national honour makes the examination of diplomacy way more interesting, and it actually draws out the personal stakes that statesmen had in the scheming. Anyway, this is where my head is currently at with the whole thing. But another part of me wants to put the whole concept away and return to Poland is not yet lost instead. I really should just canvas your guys' opinions, but... I also have an episode coming up which looks at the future plans for the podcast and which will clarify things a bit better. And I think you'll like what I have planned for the future, so make sure to listen to that episode when it drops in the next few days. Anyway, Britain Goes to War finishes its narrative in 1878, with Disraeli triumphant following the Congress of Berlin. And that was it. I don't remember admitting defeat, but... I definitely remember shrugging and deciding I didn't have time to continue the story because by spring 2016 I had a new story and a new centenary to cover, one which will be far more personal to me than all the others. And yes, don't worry 2016 Zach, we have plenty of background music in store to use here too. Easter was fast approaching, you see, and as Irish people are aware, Easter, and especially the year 1916, holds a very special place in the pantheon of our national story. But is that special place justified? Well, with all the sensitivity of a sledgehammer to a stained glass window, I intended to find out for myself, and I hope that along the way, I managed to keep my kneecaps intact. And thus, the 1916 Rising miniseries was born. Listen to that other episode looking at my 10 favourite series and episodes to learn more about those processes and reflections that paved the way for this series, Yes, that's a bit of a spoiler, because now you know 1916 appears in that top 10, but hey, what you gonna do? It was at this point that I came to realise that I had something of a problem. As the summer of 2016 approached, there I was with my years of satisfying, well-received podcasting behind me, and my award-winning master's dissertation in hand. 
And yet, I was still where I was professionally. In terms of my career, I was still a barista in Costa Coffee. And look, not to knock anyone listening right now who also works in that industry, but I distinctly remember a moment where I was unclogging a toilet, like really giving it socks, and I found the culprit because some idiot had tried to flush a nappy, despite the abundance of signs in the bathroom telling them not to, and the nappy bin being literally right there in the baby changing room. Sorry about this, but as I fished this sodden nappy out of the toilet, it somehow stayed intact just until I took it out of the bowl, and then it just emptied its contents everywhere. A part of me died in that moment, but it was also the first time I really had one of those outbursts and found myself saying something along the lines of, I have a master's, what am I doing here? Only with more expletives and quite a lot more rage. It's fair to say I had a chip on my shoulder for another reason as well. After hearing for many years that Cambridge or Oxford were the places to go if you were a history nerd like me, I had applied to both places, not expecting to hear good news at all. And yet, to cap off what had been an incredible university experience, in February and March 2016, I received confirmation emails welcoming me to both Cambridge and Oxford. I was stunned. Like, here it was, the path opening up to me, and I was well on my way to levelling up and becoming Dr. Zach in the most reputable university in the world. The same guy who couldn't get enough points to attend his BA was now being offered a place to do a PhD in the best university in the world. Yeah, I think Ireland's point system was absolute nonsense, and the whole leaving cert's ridiculous as well, so let's hope they change it soon. But anyway... This background is to paint a picture of stress and great expectation, and the toilet incident was one of many cases when these things exploded literally to the forefront. Because despite the great honour that had been bestowed upon me, I couldn't just ride off into the Cambridge sunset. If Anna and I were going to relocate our lives to the UK, and remember this was pre-Brexit Britain, then we would need money places to live and somehow I would have to be able to pay for this degree. So yeah, I'd need more, more, more money. I applied for any scholarships I could get my hands on and I launched a podcast appeal to you guys to pay for what would be an expensive step in my life. Over those months of summer 2016, I waited, anxiously checking my phone, sensitive to every notification I got in case this was the email telling me the good news. But The good news never came, and one by one, each of these scholarships told me no, and I was put out of my misery. Still, there was plenty of misery left over. It was pity party time. I was sick of my barista job after being there more than three years by now, and I wanted to do something that made use of my experience and qualifications. Like so many history graduates, though, I got nothing. Then, on one innocent August morning in 2016... A customer entered Costa Coffee, and just like that, everything changed. Ken Gibson is the CEO of a charity called The Leprosy Mission, now called The Mission to End Leprosy. And in the August of 2016, he was looking for a researcher to fill a new role they had available. It would involve a lot of, obviously, researching and education of my part to prepare the way for the next step in the charity, opening a coffee shop in Dunleary the town where the charity had been founded in 1874. I'll spare you the details, but basically Ken wanted me, and he wanted me both because of my education and because he believed I had demonstrated a fierce work ethic over the last few years with this podcast. This example, as far as he was concerned, spoke for itself. 
So I agreed to meet him in the Burnaby Pub in Greystones, and I'll never forget that meeting. I was so nervous, but those nerves vanished when I realised what was on offer. It would be my first professional job, my first opportunity to put my expertise to good use, and I could work from home, which back then in 2016 was actually unusual. So I gave two weeks' notice to my friends in Costa Coffee, who I really do miss to this day, because everyone's basically moved on, but it was really good fun at the time now that I look back on it. And in September 2016, I began my new job. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A few months before, Anna and I had gotten engaged in Mayo in a lovely place called the Westport Plaza Hotel. Seriously, check it out if you're ever in the west of Ireland, which, yeah, you really should be. Anyway, and this still makes me chuckle because when we were getting our marriage license, I still worked in Costa Coffee, so it's recorded for all posterity that my job is a barista and Anna is a student. Now, I think we've come pretty darn far since then, but it's incredible how much things can change in only a few years. By this point, I also realised something about my personality. I'd always had trouble doing what the cool kids call chilling out. I just wasn't very good at sitting around and relaxing or doing nothing. And I needed to always be doing something, which usually meant something historical. I think I was drawn to the podcast in the first place because it offered the chance to work for myself and fill the time when I would otherwise be bored. I have this strange, irrational fear of boredom, which means I find it hard to sit still. Now, I've certainly gotten better at this in my older years, but you could say I was like Bismarck. Yeah, you really could say that, actually. I was wired with energy and a thirst for knowledge, but I was still yet untamed. I'm joking, of course, but this does explain why I didn't wait too long between the 1916 series, which was really intense, before jumping into my next set of podcast specials. Now, I did take most of July 2016 off, and I remember I was still working for Costa Coffee at this point, but with the rising done, I had a moment of clarity. What I was really interested in was that post-1648 world. It was time to step away from the First World War and focus on this path less travelled. 
having got the first Anglo-Dutch war and Swedish deluges finished, it was time to pick up the story with a new war, the 1665 Second Anglo-Dutch War, complete with a new cast of characters, with England led by King Charles II, France having come into its own under Louis XIV, and the Dutch led by Johann de Witt's Republican regime. I also looked ahead and realised that the Franco-Dutch War of 1672, which followed this conflict, was even more fascinating. So onwards and upwards I went, pumping out these episodes of the Second Anglo-Dutch War up to October 2016, and from then on I tackled the Franco-Dutch War, which was a truly memorable experience. Over 24 jam-packed episodes, I explored probably the most forgotten war of the 17th century, and I brought its events and characters home to you guys. By the time I finished the Franco-Dutch War in May 2017, Anna and I were about to get married, but there was something else going on as well. Something which I was very quiet about, but which, if you know me, you'll remember quite well. Oh dear. I might have been finished celebrating centenaries from history for a while, but a special fifth podcast birthday meant that I felt When Diplomacy Fails deserved something really special. Over the course of several months, beginning in January 2017, I began putting my vision into action. I'd come a long way, you see, and I wanted the early episodes of When Diplomacy Fails to reflect that. My style had changed, my research skills had changed, and the whole podcast had really changed. So I felt those initial 20 episodes that I opened this podcast with, well, I felt they deserved to change as well. And since I'd just joined Patreon in February 2017, more on that later, I believed this would be a great way to welcome new listeners and supporters to the show, and this crazy world of mine. For the next few months, I engaged in what could only be described as a grind. I rewrote, re-recorded, and edited too many episodes to count, and I included within them numerous interviews with several esteemed podcast and historical guests. Check out the episode detailing my 10 favourite guests to learn more. I still remember walking by Greystones Beach, ticking off the tasks I still had left to do in my head, and reassuring myself that I could do it. There wasn't that many things left. I had everything completed and set up to go. Literally everything was due to go from the podcast episodes releasing to it being announced each day on social media. I had all of this finished two days before the wedding. I then left confident in the knowledge that on the 18th of May 2017, you guys were going to either love me or loathe me for what I had done to you. And what was I doing? Well, releasing two plus episodes every day for five weeks. I have to emphasize, this was not a rational thing to do, but it certainly established me as historically insane, I think you could say. Although the When Diplomacy Fails remastered party seemingly came out of nowhere, it took more work than I'd ever put into the podcast before. The end result may have scared some people away, but by the end of it, When Diplomacy Fails had more attention, and I had more listeners and supporters than before, so I'd say it was worth it. By September 2017, I'd been working at the leprosy mission for a year, and my contract was up. But that didn't matter so much. I could go part-time for them, because I now managed, thanks exclusively to your guys' support on Patreon, to go part-time with the podcast as well. It was an incredible watershed moment in my life. After just six months on Patreon, you guys had come forward in such numbers to support me, that I could now do this professionally, rather than just as a hobby. I can't explain what that meant to me at the time, just as I can't express what it means to me now. 
in podcast land September 2017 marked the beginning of my Long War series, which was initially supposed to run all the way from the last siege of Vienna in 1683 to the War of the League of Augsburg and finish in like 1698, but I quickly discovered this was too ambitious. I restricted myself to a 16-part series examining that siege in 1683, while I also released a series on Jan Sobieski for my lovely patrons. It was certainly satisfying, but I was getting a bit restless at the same time. By now, I had an idea to completely shake things up. You see, I had written a few scripts for a new series called Poland Is Not Yet Lost around this time. A brand new 30 Years War series was nearly finished, and I had also begun exploring the Korean War and developing this as well. To keep this company for patrons, I had worked on what would become 1956, and I was really excited about this too. So, in one crazy evening in late 2017, I told Anna that to mark the podcast's sixth birthday, because I had to top five weeks to run wild from the year before, I was going to launch two new podcasts. Fortunately, Anna did not flip the table over in that bar and divorce me. She instead calmly explained that I was doing too much. No one had asked for so much content. I was working much too hard when I should be working smarter. Why not release these series in the podcast feed and have others for patrons? I resisted heavily at first, convinced that you guys were expecting something ludicrous, and I was also addicted to surprising you on a grand scale. Eventually, though, I saw sense. 2018's schedule would be set. The Korean War would form the major programming, and 1956 would be for patrons. Everything to do with the Thirty Years' War would be put on hold. Sort of. We'll come to that in a bit later. But Poland is not yet lost would be put completely in the drawer and taken out when I needed it most. These decisions were wise, so you won't be surprised when I tell you they were all completely Anna's idea. They proved incredibly effective in the end. The combination of the Korean War, an era I'd never even smelled before on this show, with the linkage from 1956, where the Suez Crisis and the Soviet Union after Stalin were explored, dovetailed together so very well. To mark the 400th anniversary of the Thirty Years' War in May 2018, I released some of the episodes on the Thirty Years' War that I had redone and reworked, but quickly returned to the Korean War story then, since despite my calming insistence that the Korean War would return and I was only doing this break in the Korean War to mark 400 years of the Thirty Years' War, I received no end of emails lamenting the fact that the Korean War series had ended and wondering why. This taught me two things. First, that you actually like the Korean War, even though few people had said so to that point. And second, yeah, it's not a very good idea to suddenly interrupt your programming with something completely different. Anna was right, as if there were any doubts. It was better to stick to a sensible release schedule and save those 30 Years War episodes for the future. As I worked on the main show, I got a burst of bravery, and after a string of communications... I ended up in Tommy Reichenthal's house. Here, finally, was a chance to record some real living history. If you weren't aware, Tommy Reichenthal was a child in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, and I now had the personal testimony of a Holocaust survivor, harrowing enough to stick with me to this day. Thus followed a summer of great freedom in 2018. But it wasn't all rosy. I still wasn't making enough to support myself and Anna, and I did feel guilty about it. By now, the PhD plan had been in cold storage for a while as well, which was pretty depressing because I felt like I was deviating from what I really wanted to do. 
Perhaps it was time to admit defeat, get an office job for some random multinational company. I say that like it would have been easy for me to waltz into such a job, but it wouldn't be at all. I had no experience in doing anything office-related, and by the way, just so you're aware, I don't even type properly, and I probably never will. I know little, and knew little then, about Excel, and I knew even less about an office environment, so the summer of 2018 was spent deciding whether I would have to compromise my vision for Zack, or whether something would come up at the last minute to save me from all that, and wouldn't you just know it, in early September 2018, I got an email at the last minute, which did in fact save me from all that. The email was from Dr. John Hogan from DIT, the same guy who had asked me to do a guest lecture nearly five years before. Incredibly enough, he remembered me, and when a vacancy opened to lecture in an Irish politics module, he contacted me, saying there would be an interview the following week, and would I be interested? I answered in the affirmative, crammed my head with Irish politics trivia, and made my way into Dublin for the interview. I was told in that interview that I got the position, and there was no mystery as to why. A guy like me with zero lecturing experience had been granted this incredible break, purely, solely, because John Hogan vouched for me to them. Again, words can't express how much I owe the guy, and John, if you're listening... Thank you so freaking much, but it should also be said, none of this would ever have happened without When Diplomacy Fails. This podcast got me in touch with John in the first place, and it demonstrated my research and writing and communication skills on a great platform like nothing else could. Although When Diplomacy Fails wasn't recognised as a portfolio by universities, John Hogan saw it as such, and he really did take a chance on me. I was determined not to let him down, and after a few flutters... I surprised and delighted myself by really settling into this role. I still marvel at the fact that I was lecturing university students at 26 years old. To this day, it's one of my proudest achievements, and it only became more impressive because in December 2018, I got a call from Dublin Institute of Technology offering me two more modules in the new year. It would be up to me to teach students about European Union integration and European Union economics. What followed was a rewarding and satisfying, if immensely stressful, experience. I learned all there was to know about the European Union, how it worked, how trade and trade agreements worked, the single market, the customs union, and of course 2019's version of Brexit affected all of this. Back then we were still talking about Theresa May and the backstop, if you can turn your brain back that far. With the news changing on a weekly basis and British politics becoming more and more partisan, The lectures soon devolved into a brilliant discussion among myself and the students about Brexit and its resulting woes. It was a fantastic education for me, and hopefully for my students as well. The feedback forms I got did mention that I was extremely passionate and enthusiastic and that this was infectious, so after paying those students off for my favourable reviews, I knuckled down in May 2019 and prepared to do something I'd never done before, make exam papers. But wait, you might be wondering, what was happening in the podcast around this time? Well, history friend, I'll tell you. You'll perhaps be unsurprised to learn that simply learning how to be a lecturer and overcoming all the internal struggles to do so was not enough for Zach at this point. Even though I was mistaken for a student in that place more often than I'd like, lecturing was actually the easiest task I had on my plate at this time. You see, November 2018 represented a very special centenary, and oh no, it was, yeah, it was 100 years since the signing of the armistice. And since I'd marked the occasion of the outbreak of the First World War with such pageantry and detail in the July Crisis Project, 
it only seemed right to follow this up with a similar treatment of that boogeyman of historians, the Treaty of Versailles. Sure, the period in question was seven months long rather than one chunky month for the July crisis, but how hard could it be? Surely it wouldn't even be that hard. Why don't I reinvent the wheel while I'm at it and develop this new concept of a podcast game as well? I could call it the Delegation Game, and you guys could pick characters, vote on new resolutions for your virtual Paris Peace Conference, and I could write and narrate the scripts on a weekly basis. You guys could watch as your characters rise and fall, and there's violence and intrigue and scheming and success and triumphs and everything else, and it's all just brilliant. Look, the whole thing was such a success because you guys made it so with your deep commitment, really deep commitment, to role-playing and your immense patience with me as I figured out how to work out something like this. I learned plenty of lessons along the way, and I also appreciated that something this good deserves a sequel, so expect me to bravely return to this format once our 30 Years War series is finished for the Delegation Game Part 2, Westphalia. You may have heard it in other places, you may have heard rumours, but you heard it here officially first. Anyway, you can also depend on that Delegation Game being the podcast for as long as it's on, or at least being accompanied by a series that requires no extra effort on my part. And I say this because I learned this lesson the hard way in spring 2019. If I had been lecturing, doing the Versailles Anniversary Project, or making the delegation game by itself, everything would have been peachy. I still would have been working hard, but it would have been okay, it would have been manageable. But because of my tendency to underestimate and overpromise, Apparently being on steroids in late 2018, I was stuck with what amounted to three separate jobs going all at once. Before the full volume of work even hit me, I took some time just before my birthday in October 2018 to do something really special. I, along with several other podcasters in Agora, our podcast network, travelled to Boston to take part in the Sound Education Conference in Harvard. Also in attendance was Dan Carden, who spoke to us in a large audience and even answered my question. He actually was told about my podcast and had to answer my question, and it was really cool. Anyway, by far the greatest and most rewarding part of all of this wasn't Dan Carlin. Oh no, it was meeting my fellow podcasters in person and talking to those history friends who had been fans of When Diplomacy Fails for some time. It was just really cool. I spoke with one of you that had driven two hours just to hear me speak on the 1916 Rising. Now, driving two hours might not be a very big deal in the United States, but in Ireland it's like a slow, painful death. Anyway, the talk I did went really well, and I really enjoyed just being in that atmosphere. I only wish I had more energy as the long, intense days of socialising, well, they wore me out quicker than I expected. Meeting fans and peers all at once was tremendous, though, and it really made me feel part of something special. Podcasting can be a lonely experience, so it never hurts to be reminded every now and then that I'm not the only crazy history nerd out there, and that the work I do really is appreciated. The journey to Harvard to meet all these people recharged my batteries, but no amount of juice would have been enough for the season of stress that was coming in 2019. I'll never forget being in the Costa beside the Dublin Institute of Technology in town. And yes, I was in Costa because I needed some comfort. And I'd just finished writing exam papers, which I wasn't even sure were correct. I was exhausted, but I had to push on because a new episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project had to be written. And the new episode of the Delegation Game that I had recorded had to be edited. I was editing the episode of the Delegation Game on the bus journey home when I started to get... 
what I can only describe as a ripple of dread going through my whole body, followed by a more familiar experience, a migraine. Migraines are perhaps the only thing that I'm really afflicted by, otherwise I have really amazing health, which I'm very, very thankful for. But yeah, migraines knock me down every now and then, and it's normally a sign that I'm doing too much or pushing myself too hard. And it was then that I decided I needed help. And actually, one of the really positive things to emerge from this stressful season was me finally swallowing my pride and admitting I couldn't do this alone and asking my sister Sarah to take over editing duties for the podcast. I'm sure I've complained about this before, but editing had long been my least favourite part of the podcasting process, so letting go of this did wonders for my poor nerves, Mr. Bennett. Anyway, long story, I persevered, endured a few more migraines and pushed through in the knowledge that lecturing would end in June 2019 and the Versailles Anniversary Project and Delegation Game would end the month after. And so they did, freeing me up in July of 2019 after what had been a very eventful and stressful year. Considering my insane sixth birthday plans, when Diplomacy Fails' seventh birthday in May 2019 was much calmer and more controlled, mostly because I was such an unstable juggler at this point. Something which did make the seventh birthday a bit more special was the fact that I was able to announce in May 2019 that I had done it. After such a depressing experience with Cambridge and Oxford and seemingly giving up on the PhD dream, Anna and I had one of those critically important discussions in December 2018 when we decided it couldn't hurt to apply for a PhD in Trinity College Dublin. Like, I knew I didn't want to go back to University College Dublin, so this made the most sense. It also sounded pretty good to say you attended Ireland's two major universities and that you lectured at the other one. DIT, by the way, has since become amalgamated, all of its different institutes of technology, into the Technological University of Dublin. So yeah, I've been everywhere. The ball began rolling and by May 2019, to my surprise, Trinity reaffirmed their belief in the dream I thought was dead and they accepted me into their PhD programme. Now, it wouldn't be free, I would have to work hard and Anna and I would have to balance all this carefully and cleverly if we were to survive on a single breadwinner. But fortunately, these concerns were cushioned somewhat with this brilliant podcast and the community of you guys that surrounded on Patreon. It also had to be said that, you remember Anna's idea to just relax a little bit and not release everything at once? Well, this meant that I had a full 30 Years War series and Poland is Not Yet Lost series, ready to go in the regular and Patreon feed respectively, so there'd be no drought as I got deep into the weeds of the PhD. With this plan in place, I took effectively just August 2019 off of podcasting, with the expectation that I would return in September with a fresh new 30 Years War series and Poland's tragic but inspiring story as well. And this, essentially, has been the state of affairs for the last two years. The 30 Years War has continued to run in the background as a bi-weekly show until the last month when I moved house and then got COVID. And even though Poland has not yet lost, sadly ran out of scripts at episode 40, you guys have continued to go above and beyond in supporting this show and making my PhD dream a reality. I tried to drop some nuggets on you guys as a thanks. In spring 2020, I released Bismarck Rise, an eight-part series where I tried to do something different with this podcast format, make it a little bit more like hardcore history. I'm not sure if I really succeeded. I was still reading off a script at times, but 
Yeah, it's very hard to change my reading tone and to make it sound like I'm just talking to you as if you're in the room. This feels a little bit more natural, but it can really feel forced sometimes. And I go into this very familiar rhythm of reading sentences the same way. Anyway, hopefully it's not too noticeable. But basically, I was very sad to not just be able to continue the Bismarck story. But that's what the future's for. And again, see that episode on my plans for when diplomacy fails in the future for more on that. I returned to the PhD and finally came to terms with my thesis and what I was actually doing. Now, I'll try and break this down just so that you're aware. Essentially, rather than trying to prove that national honour motivated the statesman or that actor to make war or peace, I focused on the language or the public discourse of national honour in various foreign policy crises during Britain's Victorian era. This approach gave me new opportunities to examine the language and rhetoric surrounding those decisions for war or peace, and it helped me capture national honour as it never had been seen before, mostly because national honour has never been examined before. Still, it was fascinating, and to give you an idea, I'll next be examining the Don Pacifico affair of 1850, where Palmerston, as Foreign Secretary, basically made his name by arguing for a blockade of Greece and the defiance of other European powers because a British citizen had allegedly been attacked in Athens. The idea that the citizen could represent the national honour was one I'd encountered before, and I look forward to exploring the implications of all of this for international relations in more depth. While I got to grips with my research, I also ventured even further outside of my comfort zone. Incredible though it sounds, before Covid and Putin came along, in February 2020, I travelled to Ukraine to surprise one of my long-standing listeners and supporters for his birthday. There I met Svatoslav Yurash, Ukraine's youngest MP and a freaking genius, and I also got to experience Ukraine for myself. Believe me when I say it's a vibrant, warm and completely unique country. To hear more of my thoughts on this, on Svatoslav and the current war there, be sure to listen to my episode from a few months back. Later in 2020, I managed to complete and get published For God or the Devil, my 30 years war book. Of course, I couldn't just do something like this, like a normal person, and announce the book's release. Oh no, I had to get you guys involved and invite you to become a PhD pal, which would get you a shout-out in the book's acknowledgements, as well as a signed copy delivered to you. This all sounds great, and... I should clarify, it was a joy and privilege to have so many of you on board for it. I really, really loved signing the books for you, knowing that you'd read that dedication that I wrote to you. But oh god, I'm never doing it this way again. You guys weren't the problem. Oh no, it was all me. You see, I hadn't realised that For God or the Devil was going to be 1,200 pages, which meant it would be extremely heavy. And this fact only dawned on me when 10 boxes of these books were delivered to my door. And having charged you guys for these books, I had somehow never tried to calculate shipping, since shipping this heavy book to America, where most of you were based, cost me $30. And since I charged you $30 already for this privilege, and since I had to pay a cool $1,200 to get these books delivered to my door in the first place, well, yeah, Anna had grounds for divorce once again. There was nothing for it but to power through, though, and keep the receipts, of course, because I'm getting that off my tax. Finally, after the guts of a year, the books were all sent out. Sorry for those delays again. During this period, though, I bought back the rights for For God or the Devil so that I could self-publish it and receive the royalties for myself, along with audiobooks and all that jazz. I wasn't exactly electrified when I saw the royalties from the first few income statements when I was published, to be completely honest, 
and also during 2021 I began to learn more about self-publishing and the potential it has for podcasters like me, as well as anyone, really. Around that time I looked not only at publishing my podcast scripts as books, but also at another sphere altogether, fiction, specifically historical fiction, and ever so gradually as the ideas took shape, the vision of Matchlock was born. In September 2021, Matchlock and the Embassy, the first in a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War, was released to the world, and after several months honing my craft, removing 23,000 words, adding a glossary and streamlining that story, I managed to release a third edition of it, followed by the sequel, Matchlock and the Rebel, which just came out there on the 24th of June 2022. Now I know for a fact most of you prefer podcasting to reading fiction, and maybe you're waiting for the audiobook, but... Either way, I want to thank you for helping make this all happen. I really do believe in Matchlock, and I think it can be something special, and after years of dreaming about it, I finally had the beginnings of a historical fiction series that I've always wanted, so that in itself is just fantastic. I'm so excited for Matchlock's potential and for other ventures into YouTube, by the way, not to mention more quality podcasts and series, and maybe even a course along the way that teaches you how to make your own history podcast and ensure it's as well-researched and engaging as mine. Thank you very much. With my guidance, you too can think that New England is a state and mispronounce the strangest of words. It's not antithesis, it's antithesis, just so you know. That episode explaining the future of when diplomacy fails again will shed more light on these plans and much more. This essentially brings us to the end of what has been a very nostalgic and hopefully not too self-indulgent an episode. Yes, this episode is long, but ten years is a long time, and it only seemed right to mark the fact that this podcast has been a major feature of my life. I'm 30 years old now, which means that for a whole third of my life, When Diplomacy Fails has been there, playing a major role. Hopefully from this, you'll see how much of an impact a humble history podcast can have. It's pretty much helped me, it's guided me, it's led me through each new stepping stone in my life and I'm just so excited to see where this podcast goes in the next 10 years. Has to be said though, none of this would be possible without you. From the moment I announced 100 downloads to the extreme highs in Remarkable series to seasons of intense stress to periods of ridiculous releases to now, When Diplomacy Fails has been a privilege, you might say an honour, to be part of. Hopefully after listening here, you'll see how great a role this podcast has had in my life and how critical it was, not just to steering me towards the right career and education path, but also pulling me out of the pit of depression and self-loathing, which many years of school really had placed upon me. I can't express how important the podcast has been for helping me believe in myself and for making me believe I can do this thing and that you genuinely want to hear what I have to say. It's humbling and a little terrifying to see the stock some of you place in my opinions, but I suppose I've been doing this for a decade now, and since I'm apparently doomed to be in university forever, I shouldn't be too surprised. Perhaps in the next ten years, my war against my own imposter syndrome will be complete. Perhaps it's something I'll always struggle with. Either way, I know that this incredible community of history friends will always be there, eagerly awaiting my hot takes on the obscure, the fascinating, or the forgotten. Thanks to you, it isn't just history that's thrived over the last decade. I can honestly say that it's me that thrived as well. On that note then, before we get all emotional, thanks for listening, whether it's been this episode, a year, five years, or all ten of them. 
You've been there since the beginning. God bless you. My name is Zach. This has been When Diplomacy Fails, a 10-year retrospective. Thanks, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.